Acts 6, 1 through 7. Let us now hear the living and abiding word of God. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is the very word of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father in heaven, we are thankful to be now in your word, uh, to hear your voice speaking to us through the scriptures. We ask that you would teach us those things which are needful for us today. Uh, We desire that the church would grow greatly, that the word of God would spread. And so I pray that through this message, uh, you would impact all of us and build us up through it. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we have a phrase in English, we call it growing pains. Uh, Children ages 8 through 14 especially know what it's actually like physically to go through growing pains. It's a real thing. And as uh, children go through those growing pains, they experience a lot of change and in challenge in the change, but it's actually very good for them because they grow bigger and stronger and they mature in the way that God has designed them to be. That's how God made the body to work. And I would say that this idea of growing pains is applicable to how we think about the church of Christ and how it grows as well. Every growing church, even the healthiest, will face challenges in the growth. And we have seen a very rapidly growing church so far in Acts. Remarkable numbers of growth. We've seen 3,000 in Acts 2. We saw 5,000 being added in Acts 4 and 5. And then eventually Luke just says they were just multiplying more than ever. This was a rapidly growing church, all taking place by the power of of the Holy Spirit. And we might want to think that if there is such a remarkable spirit outpouring, that surely this church will be a problem-free church. Surely no challenges along the way. We would like that to be the case. And I'm sure, of course, that yes, the Spirit's ministry was massive in the early church. There was a great deal of spiritual growth taking place, a great deal of kingdom advance. But that did not mean that the church was problem-free. It is a messy business saving sinners and bringing them into a new community. And and God does it, but it comes with challenges along the way. We saw that one of the uh, challenges was 
in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira and their deception of the church. And the Lord put a stop to that. But it could have very much uh, infiltrated and harmed the church if it had continued on. Now we come to Acts 6, and what we have described for us is the first church conflict described in the book of Acts. It's not the last conflict, actually, that we'll see. Conflict is a reality in the Christian life and in the church. And this conflict had to do with the ministries of the church, in particular the ministry to widows of the church that were being cared for. And this caused a division to take place. In fact, it was something of an ethnic division. It broke down along ethnic lines. And we all know that when it comes to conflict in the church, there's a variety of causes that can happen to drive such conflict. Certainly, ethnic divisions often are uh, indicative of larger cultural divisions and personality differences and ways of thinking and ways of living. Our Lord, he brings together people with vast differences from one another. You look at our church, there's, there's vast differences amongst so many of us in terms of our background and our, our, our interests. And I mean, if this was a country club, this would not look like what it looks like, right? If we all got together to play golf, most of us wouldn't be here, I imagine, as it relates to the things that bind us together. One of the most beautiful things that Jesus does is to bring together all these different kinds of people and to make them one body, connected together. A harmonious body. But you think, well, is it really that harmonious? Well, Jesus is working on that. He's making it harmonious in due time. He's, he's shaping us into a loving body that ministers well to one another. But it is not a perfect and conflict-free process as the body matures. There are growing pains. The reality is sometimes our differences with one another, they get in the way of our relationships. And the body doesn't function as well as it should. Sometimes we get on each other's nerves, we would say. That's, that's accurate. We can get on each other's nerves and that causes trouble for us in our relationships. Well, this chapter, this section of chapter 6, shows us how the Lord restored unity to the church and the church continued to grow. And how did it take place? Well, the solution to this conflict was found in selecting and then appointing spirit-filled wise men to help the church in the ministry it was doing. That was how God worked to fix this problem. Certainly it went beyond that once these men were put into place. They actually had to do ministry. They actually had to help people work through their disagreements. That has to happen. It's not merely that they were put into place. But it does tell us that the Lord Jesus has a wise, good structure for his church in mind. That there is order in the church of Christ. And if that order is directed by the Spirit of God... It will bring much blessing to the church. It will contribute to the growth and the maturity of the church. As the church was getting bigger, a wise use of people and resources needed to be put in place. I mean, if you have tens of thousands of people in the church in Jerusalem, that's a lot to manage and oversee in terms of the mercy ministries of the church. That was a massive project. I wonder if seven men were enough, but apparently that's what they did. Now, as we talk about matters of church structure and as we talk about matters of church government, I want to uh, warn us against two particular ditches 
uh, ditches that will uh, cause us to think wrongly or act wrongly as it relates to this matter. One of those ditches is to so emphasize church government and structure to, ne- to the neglect of the Holy Spirit's work within the church. And what I mean by this is if we have the mindset that if we just have the best structure, the best form, the most biblically defined parameters for how our church operates, we will do well. We will be healthy. Well, merely having a good structure does not guarantee a healthy or growing church. Good structure is important. We're going to talk about good structure. But good structure does not mean that we are automatically healthy. Uh, There's plenty of examples of churches in history that have been well-structured and not healthy. And then there's been examples of churches in history that have not been very well-structured, but somehow God does amazing things through them. We can find both realities. The other ditch is to think that the work of the Holy Spirit is the opposite of order and structure. Sometimes people associate the work of the Holy Spirit with sheer spontaneity. Whatever is the opposite of structure and order, people think, that must be what the Holy Spirit does. And I think that is an error to say that. Do I believe that the Spirit can work above and beyond structures and, and, limit, and, and rules and so forth? Absolutely. But as we see, even in 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, as the matter of the spiritual gifts was addressed in the church, Paul teaches us that the Spirit is a spirit of order. How else could it be? I mean, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Is God a God of order? Let's look at the world around you. It's extremely orderly. It's extremely beautiful and intricate and wisely structured. Well, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of order as well. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 32 through 33, uh, Paul is speaking here about prophecy. He talks about how the Spirit of God is not this wild, chaotic, chaos kind of creating spiritual force. Rather, there's an orderliness about the Spirit's ministry. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32, Paul says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So God does not create this chaotic environment where there's confusion and disorder and randomness that nobody can make any sense of. There is orderliness in the ministry of the Spirit. Additionally, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, as Paul is instructing the church on how it should exercise these gifts, Paul says, Let all things be done decently and in order. Uh, This is a favorite Presbyterian verse. We love this verse because it speaks to the orderliness of the church and the Spirit's ministry in it. Now keep in mind those two ditches as we talk about these things. We're going to look at good structure, good church government, but we also need to think about how much we need the Holy Spirit to fill men to wisely administer that church government lest things do not go well. So let's keep in mind those two ditches. But now I want to look at the conflict itself as we've Dealt with some of those introductory matters. Let's look at verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So let's review a few matters here. What was happening in the church? What was the issue? Well, the first thing we note is that there was a conflict and it divided along these ethnic lines. It was the 
uh, Greek-speaking Jews, which is the Hellenists, Jewish Christians, that is. We're talking, of course, about church members. So it's the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians and then the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians that were all members of this church in Jerusalem. And there was a conflict that had taken place. Now, I don't know how much these two groups were able to uh, understand each other's language, how many of them knew Greek and Hebrew versus some that didn't. We're not told. Certainly, a lack of ability to communicate makes resolving issues harder, doesn't it, if that was part of the issue. We also know that when it comes to ethnic differences between people, that there's a lot of other differences that come along with it, right? It's not always just language. Language is indicative often of larger differences that we have with each other. Cultures are made up of so many elements. There's dress, there's physical gestures, there's verbal expressions, there's things that you eat. There's ways that you work through things. There's, there's behavioral differences as it relates to co- cultural backgrounds. Sometimes we call it a way of thinking. If you think about uh, somebody from a different culture than you, you can sometimes struggle to understand them. It's not enough just to do Google Translate. That there's a whole mindset that goes into the background of various cultures, and you can't always uh, bridge that cultural gap very well without understanding them better. So you can imagine that this would be the kind of soil from which a conflict could erupt. These people could start misinterpreting each other's actions. And they could start to build up a bit of a wrong perspective uh, of the others. And so these Greek-speaking Jewish Christians could have thought very negatively of the Hebrew-speaking Christians. And and they could have been observing things as the daily distribution to the widows was happening. And they, they keep feeling like they're getting slighted. Uh, in that distribution, and maybe they were, maybe they weren't. The text never tells us whether that was truly the case or not. Now, next we should look at what was the daily distribution. Well, the text does not say anything beyond it being a daily distribution. It actually doesn't say the daily distribution of food. We kind of fill that in. Uh, It's likely that it was food because later the the apostles talk about serving tables. So I think that the the normal interpretation that it was a food issue was probably the case. I believe the church was focusing on giving food to the widows, the most essential need uh, for them. It is possible that they would distribute other kinds of things as well, other essential needs to the widows, clothing or or other matters. We find quite a bit in Scripture about caring for widows and orphans. This is very near to the heart of our God. 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, you can look at that later if you'd like. It has many detailed instructions about how widows are to be cared for and how they're to be counseled as members of the church. And in addition to that, there are many Old Testament references to how widows were to be prioritized in the charitable giving of God's people. And it's uh, therefore an encouragement as we read Acts 6 to see that the early church from the very outset made sure that it was caring for widows. This was very near to the heart of God and it was very near to the heart of Christ. Why is it that caring for widows and orphans is so important to our God? Because he's a God of compassion. He's a God of love. 
Our Lord Jesus is a savior full of compassion and love for his people. And so he cares for the least of these. He cares for those that have experienced loss. He cares for those who are in such a condition. As Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And so it's, it was good that the early church here was caring for the widows, and yet it still became a source of conflict. Even when you're doing good, you can get into difficulty uh, in that regard. Now let us keep in mind as a church the priority of caring for widows and orphans and others that are in need. Uh, let us not forget that James 1 verse 27 tells us that pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If we ever forget what is it that Jesus wants us to be doing, how are we supposed to be showing love, just go back to James 1 27. It's very straightforward for us. Now keep in mind that widows in the ancient world, they faced unique economic challenges. Of course, widows in the modern day certainly do as well, but there was unique challenges to the ancient world. Uh, there was no welfare assistance from the government. There's no food stamps. There's no EBT card program available for them. There's no Medicaid. There's no other uh, additional resources and supports to help in this situation. So the church is especially needed here to help in this time of need. And no doubt widows were still, uh, would have had opportunity to work in different ways, but often they would have faced difficulty in being able to work as much for a few reasons. One of them would be that they uh, had many children often, and so they needed to care for the children first. That made it difficult to do such work. And additionally, there were not nearly as many economic opportunities that were, call them women-defined jobs or roles that would have been available at that time. So you can see how important this is. Now, what should we think of this conflict? Was this actually a reality? Was this really taking place? Were the Greek-speaking uh, widows being neglected in the daily distribution? Well, and the reality is the text never tells us whether that was actually the case or not. Uh, it, sometimes you have a conflict and there's what we call the presenting issue. And sometimes it turns out that the the presenting issue was accurate and true. Sometimes it's not. At the very least, it was clear that they needed to have administration over this distribution. They needed to better administrate. Because even if it was not actually the case, there was conflict happening. And so the apostles recognized we need men that are overseeing this. We need wise, Holy Spirit-filled men to care for this matter because this is so important to our church's ministry to care for those in need we need to make sure that we are providing oversight of this. And so the apostles recognized the need for delegation. Uh, just like Moses in Exodus 18, you remember he couldn't handle all the issues himself. He was weary from handling all the cases that were coming to him. He was just couldn't get any rest because there were so many matters to adjudicate. And, and Jethro stepped in. He says, you need help. This is not good what you're doing. And so it was also here, it was not good that the apostles had this whole mercy ministry and daily distribution going on, and it wasn't being overseen as well as it should have been, and so conflict was happening. And so they needed to have men that would be in place for this very purpose. And this reminds us that 
Our Lord Jesus is wise and good in providing faithful men to shepherd and care for the church and to administrate the church when it comes to these kinds of ministries. So children, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, the Lord Jesus provides men to give attention to word and prayer. And he provides men to oversee the mercy ministries of the church. And so what we do find in this passage is that there is a specific devotion that the apostles are to have to word and prayer. And then there's a specific attention that these seven men are to have to the mercy ministry of the church. There is a a division of labor here that takes place as a wise implementation to help the church resolve this matter and to oversee its work. So let's look at that division of labor in verses 2 through 3. The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, and they said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So here we observe the reconstituted twelve apostles. Luke says, here's the twelve, Matthias included. Uh, They're all coming together to consider what should we do here. And it's noteworthy that the apostles didn't just make a top-down decision here. They did have a, uh, a guiding of the church. They said, we need to do something about this. And they had a plan. But you'll notice that they brought the whole church in to consider the issue and to provide a solution through the selection of godly men. And it is, I think, a wise principle of church shepherding that when there is an issue at hand, that we seek to bring the church in to consider how we can all contribute to that solution. And it might be, in this case, through the appointment of men to a certain role, uh, maybe some other matter, but we should involve the whole body of Christ in, in different ways to resolve issues that we face. It's a reminder that the basic pattern of church life that we see in the New Testament is not this hardcore clergy and laity distinction. It is true that the scriptures uh, distinguish between those that are appointed to certain offices in the church and, and, and the rest of the body, but we do not want to have such a hard and fast distinction that we neglect the fact that the whole body of Christ is to do the work of ministry is to be involved in the upbuilding of the church of Christ. It is not one guy at the top, everybody else doing nothing but listening. It is rather a matter that we all contribute to the building of the holy temple of the Lord. And Ephesians 4 tells us this. It's such a valuable passage in Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 12 because what we are told here is that the ascended Lord Jesus Christ has given gifts to his church and they come, those gifts come in the form of men who are put into these offices and those men in those offices build up the church so that it can do the work of ministry. Ephesians four eleven through 12, I'll just read a portion of that. The Lord Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so clearly the goal was not that only pastors and teachers build up the body of Christ and minister. It was that pastor teachers equip the body to minister, which then builds up the whole body. We won't have a healthy church if it's only the pastor teachers doing everything. We need the whole body involved. 
And so the apostles, as uh, shepherds, as leaders, they have a plan, they have a direction. They say, we do need to appoint men to oversee this important mercy ministry. And so they say to the church, the whole church, you all select from among yourselves those men. They, They gave some qualifications for what kind of men they needed to be, but the whole church was involved in the selection. And it's from this pattern that as Uh, Reformed and Presbyterian churches, we have practiced this principle of nomination, that you can nominate a man to the office of pastor or the office of deacon. Uh, And we still practice that. I don't know if we announce it as much as we should or promote it as much as we should. Uh, We need to think more about how to uh, prepare for that, but we do actually invite the church to make nominations for pastors and deacons. In fact, you can nominate somebody at any time, and the elders need to consider that nomination. Now, the elders still have the responsibility to say whether they're going to put forward that nomination if they feel that this man is gifted and qualified, as he should be, but there is a role of nominating uh, men to these offices, and that is the responsibility of the whole church. Now, a common question about this passage is this. Does Acts 6 describe the formal institution of the office of deacon? Is that what this passage is about? Well, interpreters have disagreed about that matter. Some see this, and I would say the vast majority of interpreters throughout history have seen this as the institution of the diaconate as a office that is distinct from elder, as we see in 1 Timothy 3. Others, however, see this as a temporary and unique arrangement that was necessary for the situation in the church in Jerusalem, and that the seven had to care for the widows in Jerusalem, but when persecution arose, this very arrangement might have broken down or changed, and maybe these men were not formally deacons. And those that say that would point out that the name or title deacon is never applied to these men. Uh, And that is true. The title deacon is never applied to the seven as they are titled here. However, we would respond and say, well, there is the word serve, diakoneo, that's the Greek verb to serve in the passage. And that's true. Diakoneo is there. They were to serve tables as deacons, as it were, if we're just using the verb. However, the word diakoneo is equally used for the ministry of the word. So whenever you see that word ministry in the text, it's just diakoneo. It's the the word from which we get deacon. And so there were actually two diaconal ministries if we're just using the verb. The ministry of serving tables or the mercy ministry here. And then there was the ministry of word and prayer. They were both diaconal ministries in the verbal sense. However... Even though there is not the use of the title deacon, I will suggest that this passage, in principle, gives us guidance on how we view the diaconate. So what I'm not going to say is definitively, I know these men were title deacons and they had that office, because the text I do not think tells us that. They might have been. But what I will say is that, in principle, this passage guides us in how we think about the diaconate. And the reason I say it that way is this is a somewhat unique circumstance. You have apostles and then you have the seven. You don't have the title elders and deacons, right, in the text. 
However, I think that the apostles and then the seven, this, this twofold division here, is illustrative of the way that elders and deacons are to work as well. And the reason I say that is Ephesians 4, which we read just a moment ago, tells us that there are similarities between the apostles and the pastor teachers. That is to say, both of those offices are teaching and equipping offices for the church. And so I do think that in, in light of that, that we, we can read this division between the apostles and the seven as effectively analogous to the way that we have a division between elders and deacons in the church. So I do believe that Acts 6 provides us much wisdom about how we think about the diaconate, even if we can't say for sure whether these men were literally titled deacons. They certainly were servants because they were serving tables. Now, one of the reasons that many have seen Acts 6 as relevant for the diaconate is that these men were given qualifications, right? Just like the deacons are in 1 Timothy 3, these men had certain qualifications that they had to meet to be in this serving office. And those qualifications are fairly similar to 1 Timothy 3. And so, kids, this is the second point in your notes about qualifications. The men who would care for the mercy ministry of the church were to be men of godly character. They were to be men of godly character. Let's look at the qualification in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now let's look at these qualifications. The first, of course, is very simply that they were to be men. It is a gender-specific word here. They were men that were appointed to this role. Uh, Again, similar to 1 Timothy 3, where deacons are also required to be men. Secondly, they were to be men of good reputation. That, I think, parallels the fact that in 1 Timothy 3, the deacons were to be blameless men. They were to be above reproach, not sinless, but men who had a consistency of character and life and godliness and a reputation known for uh, faithfulness. Thirdly, they were to be men full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was essential for their ministry. If they would do their ministry faithfully, they needed the equipping and the filling of the Holy Spirit to guide them in how to help the people of God. Now, you might think about serving tables, and you might think, isn't that just a logistical thing? I mean, it's just a matter of numbers and planning and logistics and spreadsheets, which they didn't have, but all these kinds of things. Isn't it just logistics, just serving tables? Couldn't anybody do that that has a little bit of organizational skills? And I would say, no, no, no. You you cannot find it sufficient to have a man that simply has some organizational skills to solve this. This was a relational problem. This was not just a matter of organization. There was relationships at stake. There were widows over here and widows over here that were probably mad at each other. That takes wisdom. That takes the Holy Spirit to know how to resolve those kinds of issues. It's not just going to be a matter of organization. Nobody's just going to be pleased with your organizational chart and how how great it is to solve that issue. And I think this reminds us that those who serve well in the diaconal role or in the mercy ministry role, they're not qualified by being financial experts. 
They're not qualified by being gifted administratively, though that is certainly a help to a, a deacon. They are qualified first and foremost by being spiritual men. Men full of the Holy Spirit and therefore who have wisdom. Unspiritual men who serve in this role will not serve well. Unspiritual men will mess things up very fast. They will make a bad situation possibly worse if they're unspiritual men rather than making it better. And it's a reminder that uh, to both elders and deacons in our church that we need to pray for the increase of the Holy Spirit and the equipping of the Holy Spirit in our ministries because we have great potential to mess things up uh, at any particular point in time with how we uh, shepherd the church. And we need God's help. We are dependent upon God to help us not mess things up, but instead shepherd well and love well and serve well. It's a reminder that simply having a church structure that is technically biblical does not mean you have a healthy church or healthy church relationships. We can have a very well-structured diaconate and eldership, but it needs love. It needs the Holy Spirit if it's going to work well. If you have elders and deacons who are unspiritual men who are more ruled by the passions of their flesh rather than led by the Holy Spirit, you will have a disaster on your hands. You will have conflict. You will have chaos. You will have confusion as a result. And I believe that the principles of Presbyterian church government as it has generally been understood and practiced is based on sound biblical principles. I will argue for that. I will talk to you about that. And, and I think all of us should desire to grow in our understanding of biblical church government and its implications and how to be a part of that and how to contribute to that. But I will also say that without the Holy Spirit's filling ministry, we are done for, uh, regardless of how good our system of church government is. Now, I want to look at this last qualification of these men. They were to be men of wisdom, men of wisdom. Why was wisdom so important? Caring for people, shepherding people, loving people requires a lot of wisdom to do well. Let's remember that the ministry of the church is people ministry. We are ministering to people. We're not uh, manufacturing products we're not selling products. We're, we're not in some sort of commercial trade. We are in the ministry, the service of people. And it requires a great deal of wisdom to understand people. It's a lot easier to understand how to manufacture a product than it is to understand the human heart. You ever try to understand the human heart fully and like put it on a blueprint and understand all the, like, the ways it works? I mean, it's impossible. And so let us remember that the the Church of Christ is not a faceless institution of bank accounts and forms and profit and loss statements and buildings and and, and strategies and, and marketing campaigns. It is made up of people and people that need to be loved and and guided and shepherded well. And that requires a great deal of wisdom. Uh, since I was uh, put into this work of ministry in particular in 2019, I have been humbled many times overseeing my lack of wisdom. Sometimes it's because I reflect on how 
I messed things up. At other times, it's like a matter of not even knowing what to do. You come to a situation, you say, I have no idea what to do here. And that's when you pray for wisdom, especially. Who is sufficient for the work of ministry? Who is sufficient to preach and teach in the church? Who is sufficient to do the mercy ministry of the church? Well, the answer is none of us, naturally speaking, are sufficient. But thankfully, God is at work in us who enables us to do what we otherwise could not do. And he does give wisdom to his people. He gives wisdom to men who are then put into these roles who then love the church well because they have wisdom. And it appears from our passage that they did resolve this issue. I don't know what it took. I don't know how much they had to fix or change or work through these disagreements. But it seems like the church grew as a result of putting these wise men into this role. Next, we need to consider the role of the apostles and, by extension, the role of the pastor teachers, which is in verse 4. They wanted these men, uh, the seven, to uh, to serve tables and to serve the mercy ministry. But the apostles knew that they needed to devote themselves to something. They needed to keep a focus upon another ministry that that supported the ministry of the church. Verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles were not men that said, Ah, we don't want to do that serving tables business. We're just too high up for that. That was not their attitude, was it? We don't do dirty things like serve tables. That's for uh, other, that's a menial task. That wasn't the reason they said this. They said this because they knew that the ministry of word and prayer was so important to the development and the growth of the church that it would be unwise of them to neglect that to then serve tables. It wasn't that these were men that were not servants at heart. We see them serving the church in so many different ways. But they recognized that the priority of their ministry was word and prayer. They were to focus on preaching and teaching and praying to God and evangelistic ministry and the study of God's word and and discipling those people that the Lord had brought to the church. And they were to be devoted to it. So kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, the apostles and the pastor teachers of the church are to be devoted to the ministry of word and prayer. Devoted. We've we've seen this word in uh, past messages. It was used in Acts 2 of the whole church that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Now, it is used specifically of what the apostles, and by extension, the pastor teachers of the church, were to be devoted to and focused on. Devotion is something that you give yourself continually to. It is something that you engage in as a regular habit of life. And we think about people that devote themselves to the study and practice of something and how how much time it takes, how much focus it takes to devote yourself well to that. Uh, You think of the the best masons, the best stone layers are those that are devoted to masonry. They study it, they practice it, they hone their trade. The best violinists are the most practiced violinists and they're constantly cultivating those skills. The best CPAs, they know accounting in and out, and they've studied for years and worked in the field. They know it very, very well. 
And in a similar way that the men of God who are called to preach the word and to shepherd the church are to be men that are devoted to the study, the meditation, and the teaching of the word of God. And they are equally equally to be devoted to praying to God, seeking his blessings upon the ministry and upon the growth of the church. This is what they are to do. Now in our day... Everything seems to be viewed in terms of practicality and efficiency. And I think that the ministry of the word and prayer can wrongly be, can be harmed by this mindset of practicality and efficiency. And speaking personally, I've had to resist the wrong notion in my mind that I don't have enough time for prayer because I have things to do. That's, that's a very bad indication of how I'm thinking if it's the idea is, I don't have time for prayer, I'm too busy. Well, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's the ministry of word and prayer. I say that because I have the mindset of being a list checker. I like to check boxes off and get things done. Check, 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 check. I don't know if anybody here relates to that, but things get done efficiently. Things get done quickly, and and they don't take this whole extended time of, of focus and meditation and communion with God and seeking the face of God. and That's a whole different kind of mindset. And the reason I'm emphasizing prayer here is because the ministry of the church is to be a God-supported, God-enabled ministry at all times. Prayer is the indication that we know that we need God to do things. We need God to move mountains if the church will grow, if the people of God will mature. That's what prayer says as we give it so much more time as we should grow in it. We cannot also, we cannot minister the word faithfully apart from a praying life. We cannot bring a, a, faithfully bring a message from the word of God that will have any real impact unless God blesses it. That's why it's the ministry of word and prayer. It's not merely the ministry of somebody being really good at what they do and the outcome of their excellence is always a great result of conversions and growth and so forth. That's, that's just not how the ministry works. We'd like to think if you could just get the best trained preacher pastor who has like six different ministry degrees that the church would just explode and grow and everything would go great because you have such a highly trained individual doing these things. But that's not the way the ministry works. We cannot awaken dead souls to God's truth unless the Holy Spirit works the miracle of the new birth. And so we have to pray for that. We cannot make people come alive spiritually to God's truth without God giving them life. We cannot grow the church without God's blessing for the church to grow. We are doing supernatural work that is absolutely impossible to do by mere human strength or wisdom. And so it is the Lord Jesus building his church. And this this is what we must keep in mind as we think about the ministry of word and prayer. Now let's look here at uh, some of the final details of our passage, verses 5 through 6. We see that they chose seven men, verse 5. The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, 
Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. It's noteworthy that all of these names happen to be Greek names. Uh, it's possible that they, uh, the apostles said, okay, let's have the Greek-speaking Christians choose who they want to fix this problem that they're complaining about. That might be why these Greek names are highlighted and said, okay, if you th- see there's a problem, you'd be part of the solution. Uh, whatever the case, these men were well qualified for this role. And we only uh, hear about two of them later in Acts. We hear much about Stephen in uh, 6, 7, and 8 of Acts. And then we'll hear also about Philip in chapter 21. He's later called the Philip the Evangelist. He had four daughters who prophesied. So we'll get to look at Philip's ministry as well. And noteworthy that they are set apart by the laying on of hands. Uh, the laying on of hands was often this setting apart kind of um, ritual, as it were. It was a way, effectively, of saying, these men we are commissioning to do a certain work. That's why when we ordain men to these offices, we do lay hands on them and pray for the Holy Spirit's blessing to equip them to do the work that they're supposed to be doing. And that's what they did here. They set them apart uh, for this important role. Now, what effect did this have upon the church? That's where we want to close today. What effect did God bring about through this wise administration and the putting in place of godly men? Verse 6 tells us what the effect was. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, when Luke does this in Acts, he'll do, the, he'll do, this, many, he'll, uh, do this many times in Acts. He'll say, the word of God spread, or the word of God multiplied. It's usually following something good that happened, in most cases. Of course, even with Herod, it's actually something good that happened. Herod was killed, and then the word of God spread. Uh, God brought judgment to Herod and his persecutions. And here, I think what Luke wants us to understand, what the Holy Spirit speaking through Luke wants us to understand is that through this wise administration, through the setting apart of faithful, godly, spirit-filled men, the church was blessed. The church grew. The church advanced because of this. And I think what this teaches us is that having wisely arranged the ministries of the church by the wise implementation of church government with qualified men, the wise distribution of time and gifts, that helps the church in its ministry to the world. It reminds us that there does need to be this division of labor so that we all work together for the upbuilding of the church. And the ministry of the word and prayer was never to be neglected because even though mercy ministry is vitally important for the church, we must remember that mercy ministry doesn't save anybody. Mercy ministry is a very important way that we minister the love of Christ to his people and by extension then to the world. But mercy ministry does not save people from sin and death. It is the gospel that must be proclaimed to save people. Mercy ministry, of course, will be a vehicle of love. It will be a testimony to the truth of the gospel, the, the love of Christ. But it must be accompanied with the ministry of the gospel. And that's what the apostles were wise to emphasize. 
Now, as we look at verse 7, I I trust that all of us want the very same thing to be said of our church. The word of God spread. The disciples multiplied greatly. Don't we all desire that for this church? As our brother, Pastor Kevin, prayed this morning. We all pray frequently for growth through conversions and through baptisms, through new church members. and, And we'll pray for that again as we close in a moment. But what I want us to see from our passage today is that one of the ways that Jesus builds his church is by the setting apart of faithful, godly, spirit-filled men to grow the church and to shepherd the church. And so we need to give attention to these matters. As we pray for elders and deacons, we need to give attention to this in terms of training, supporting, promoting this matter, uh, and seeing it as a vital aspect of our church's health. There's going to be seasons where we feel this need the most acutely, especially when the church is really short on elders and deacons. Our, our congregation has been very blessed with a number of elders and deacons, uh, which is unique in the CPC at this point. And we pray it not be unique anymore. We pray that all the other CPCs have more officers as well. But one of the things I want to close with and re- as a reminder to all of us here this morning is that we are all called to serve the church of Christ. And the word minister or serve, as I said, is that word diakoneo. So in that sense, all of us are involved in diaconal ministry. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 through 11, he tells us to the whole body here, as each one has received a gift, minister, diakoneo, minister, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so we desire Jesus to be glorified in our church, and that glorification of our Savior comes when we all exercise ourselves in service to one another. Every act of service you render, every word of encouragement, every prayer offered, every meal made, every smashed communion cup you pick up so that my baby Lucy won't eat it uh, is appreciated. Every dish washed, every bathroom cleaned, every check-in by text or phone or in person to someone suffering in the body, every gift or thank you card, every help rendered to someone moving, you could... Add to the list, there's probably so many that I'm not thinking of in terms of categories, but you get the point that every act of service is on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ. We serve in his name, and we are to serve his brothers and sisters faithfully. And as our Lord Jesus said in John 13, as he washed the disciples' feet, he gave us an example that you should do as I have done to you. And we're not above our master, we are called to serve one another. And our Lord Jesus also says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so we will find much blessing as we serve one another in this body. So let us close in prayer, asking that God would grow the church uh, through the ministry of word and prayer and the ministry of service. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the way in which you provide for the church. You provide faithful, qualified men to shepherd your people. And we thank you for the the men that you've provided in our congregation. We ask for uh, that you would continue to raise up men to serve in these offices of elder and deacon. And we 
Uh, Also pray that all of us would see the vital necessity of being servants one to another and uh, exercising our gifts for the glory of Christ. We do pray that the word of God would spread. We do pray that the church would grow in advance. Uh, We ask for these blessings and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.